0: Let us turn again to the first letter of Paul to Timothy, chapter 3, reading from the beginning. This is a true saying, if a man desire the office of a bishop, he desireth a good work. A bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, vigilant, sober, Of good behaviour, given to hospitality, apt to teach, Not given to wine, no striker, not greedy of filthy lucre, But patient, not a brawler, not covetous, One that ruleth well his own house, Having his children in subjection with all gravity, for if a man know not how to rule his own house, how shall he take care of the church of God? Not a novice, lest being lifted up with pride he fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must have a good report of them which are without, lest he fall into reproach and the snare. Of the devil. When our Lord Jesus ascended back to heaven, we read at the end of Luke's Gospel, chapter 24, that he led the disciples out as far as to Bethany and lifted up his hands and blessed them. And it came to pass while he blessed them, he was parted from them and carried up. Into heaven. And so that last sight of our Lord was of Him with hands raised in blessing, like the great high priest He would be in that upper sanctuary of heaven. So every recollection of that final glimpse of our Lord would remind them of His love and goodwill toward the disciples. And toward all his people. And we know that one expression of that favor to his church is in the gifts that he gave to the church. And in Ephesians four and verse eight, we read that when he ascended up on high, he gave gifts unto men. And in chapter four, verse 11 of Ephesians, we see what those gifts are. Office bearers to care for his church. And it's interesting that Paul quotes in that place from Psalm 68. And there is an additional part to it at verse 18, saying that the Lord has given gifts to men, uh, these office bearers, that the Lord God... Might dwell among them. In other words, his gifts in men holding office in the church has very much to do with his presence in the midst. Office bearers are expressions of his love to us, provision for us, for our good and our blessing. And when they are in place, the church is scripturally constituted. The Lord is pleased to be in our midst. So that's a great encouragement. And the permanent offices mentioned in Ephesians 4 are, of course, pastors and teachers, meaning uh, elders, one of whom is the teaching elder, the minister, called the pastor, together with ruling elders. And by extension, adding Acts chapter 6, the appointment of deacons as well. So that, for instance, the government of the church is by these two offices, and you find it in the opening words of Philippians chapter 1. Paul and Timotheus, the servants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus which are at Philippi with the bishops or elders and deacons. So we come to our third sermon on this subject this morning. The qualifications for men to hold these two offices. We have briefly looked mainly at 1 Timothy chapter 3 and we continue with this this morning. This portion has enabled us to Look at the qualities and the gifts required as we prayerfully consider whom the Lord may be raising up among us to serve as additional elders and deacons. We have seen that grace must come ahead of gifts and that all the qualifications really fall into three main categories – Personal qualities, domestic standards, and church commitment. We've had the first two personal qualities, domestic standards, and this morning we come to church commitment. And there are parts of uh, this passage which apply to. Men's love of the church and dedication to it. And it's in the spirit of Psalm 137, verse 6, as we just sang. If I do not remember thee, let my tongue cleave to the roof of my mouth, if I prefer not Jerusalem above my chief joy. Love of the church, love to the church. And service done in love. So the first thing we have here is verse 2 of 1 Timothy 3 vigilant. In other words, to be watchful. Watchful over oneself. That is realistic because you see, we can be so busy for others that we can neglect our own walk with the Lord. And eventually, if we are overlooking wrong things in ourselves, then we can become blameworthy in certain respects and bring the church and its gospel into disrepute. And it's no excuse to say that we were so busy helping other people uh, that we allowed ourselves to backslide in any degree. So vigilant, take heed Unto thyself, the apostle says to Timothy in another connection. But of course, vigilant concerning the church fellowship. And it means watchful care. You've got it in Hebrews 12 and verse 15. Looking diligently, lest any fail of the grace of God. And that's a a remarkable expression. This is actually addressed to church members. We have a duty to be vigilant for one another, but it especially applies to church officers. Looking diligently, lest any fail of the grace of God. What does it mean to fail of the grace of God? Well, the grace of God is... What it is to be a Christian, it is the element in which we live, move and have our being. And when we have grace from the Lord, we live the Christian life and we're blessed with assurance. We walk closely with the Lord. We're helped forward to growing grace. But to fail of the grace of God means to struggle spiritually and to be in certain trouble and difficulty and it is the part especially of elders isn't it and primarily the pastor to be vigilant and watchful to see if there be any of our dear ones who are in difficulty spiritually and not so blessed as they were in the grace of God and if that is the case and we see that We seek to get alongside and kindly inquire and seek to say something that might encourage or offer to visit and uh, have a further time together. But it's that vigilance that cares for others in their spiritual needs. In Hebrews 13, verse 17, they watch for your souls concerning elders. In other words, to literally look after the Lord's people, every one of them, and be very mindful, aware of needs, and prayerful, inquiring, ready to help, ready to be a blessing. Not intrusive and nosy and always uh, asking, but that tender wisdom and sensitivity To seek to be a blessing to the sheep of Christ's flock. Vigilant. You can't be that if you're not open-eyed and observant and careful of others. And then verse 2 again. Sober. Which literally means of sound mind. In other words, a man who follows sound reason. Biblically informed, of course, and not governed by strong emotion or impulse. It's always a danger to react in an impulsive, emotional way. You can depend upon it that any uh, action that takes place as a result of an impulse is not likely to be helpful. That's... Very important because, you see, provoking situations might arise and we must never give way to impatience. 1 Corinthians 13 verse 5, charity or Christian love is not easily provoked. It's added in Titus 1 verse 7 concerning the elder, not soon angry if you've got a a short fuse there's always a danger that something that someone says to you uh, some situation that suddenly arises and you're provoked and and you rise up and speak angry words says also there uh in verse two um no striker uh or verse 3 rather, no striker, and then further on, not a brawler. And so you can see how far it can go and how dangerous the situation is. It would not necessarily come to physical uh, striking and brawling, but you can strike with your tongue, and that can be very hurtful. You can brawl with a shaken fist, and that can be very threatening. And it's not saying here that no elder or pastor uh, could ever possibly feel tempted to this. But in that temptation, by the grace of God, there's that sobriety and that self control so that grace reigns and grace governs the spirit. Any man who is given to losing it in any situation, better not. Occupy such an office because he would be quite a danger. A wise governing of ourselves and a wise handling of others. And I've sought during these sermons to make it clear that these are qualities that apply to all Christians anyway. Especially to office holders but to all Christians. And as a reminder of that if you turn to Judges chapter 8 you will see that you've got a remarkable example of being sober and self-controlled in a provoking situation. It's the case of Gideon. And you know how that Gideon led the Israelites to victory against the Midianites, a God-given victory, and it was a tremendous rout. But the men of Ephraim, Judges Eight Verse 1, the men of Ephraim said unto him, Gideon, why hast thou served us thus, that thou callest us not, when thou wentest to fight with the Midianites? They did chide with him sharply. Strongly it means. And so this could have been such a thing for Gideon, couldn't it? He had given himself to this, leading the people against the Midianites in a tremendous battle and a glorious victory. And this tribe of Ephraim, in their churlishness, turn on him and say, why didn't you include us in this? Why didn't you ask for our help? And Gideon could have turned on them and said, well, that's the last thing I want to hear from you. And so on. And he could well have chided with them sharply But what did he do? Look at verse 2. And he said unto them, What have I done now in comparison of you? Is not the gleaning of the grapes of Ephraim better than the vintage of Abiezer? God hath delivered into your hands the princes of Midian, Oreb and Zeb. And what was I able to do in comparison of you? Then their anger was abated toward him when he said that. And you see, he reminded them that the Ephraimites had captured these two princes of Midian, Oreb and Zeb, and had killed them. And Gideon is saying, this that you have done is far greater than what I and the rest of the people of Israel have done. And so, such a wise answer A soft answer turneth away wrath and he turns the situation that could have been so ugly and violent into something commending and positive and the heat goes out of the confrontation and that kind of sober mindedness and self-control under provocation, knowing the right kind of thing to say, to diffuse a situation and even to win round detractors and those who are hostile. So sober, ever men who are exhibiting this kind of spirit. We are tested sometimes, aren't we? And in certain situations, the devil can so stir up an individual knowing just when the pastor or the elder is at his most vulnerable and bang, something is said. And then, great danger. The devil can blow it up and triumph if grace does not govern and the Holy Spirit controls. Sober, sound mind under a gracious government. And then again in verse 2, given to hospitality. It is easy to stress the office and position of elder and deacon, but to forget the love that should belong to these offices. We've looked at one way, being vigilant and watchful for the needs of others, But hospitality is another expression of that. Showing it in inviting others to their homes for fellowship. Not everybody is gifted to the same extent in terms of producing meals. But certainly for coffee, for an hour or two of fellowship sometime in the day, Or for tea on the Lord's Day or for meals on the Lord's Day, whatever. But an open home to the Lord's people. Fellowship. Hospitality means literally love of strangers. And that is what Christians are. 1 Peter 2 verse 11, strangers and pilgrims. And it is so helpful... To be in the homes of fellow Christians when we feel that we are among the rest of the world and we're just passing through and we don't belong here. We're not loved or accepted by everyone here. But oh, to be among the Lord's people in the warmth and welcome of their home. Given to hospitality. Such a great comfort and Again, being vigilant and seeing those particularly in some kind of need to invite them so that they'll have what is really a refuge and a place where they might be able to open up and unburden themselves and be helped, given to hospitality. It's a great ministry to students as well. We know of churches in um, university cities and places where there are colleges and Christians leave home, youngsters leave home and they go to another church and they so need what they've had here in their home church. Happy the church that sees a responsibility for students and members of the church, office bearers in the church who will open their homes to young people and have them for the Lord's Day so that they don't have to spend the Lord's Day in the hall of residence or in the uh, digs amongst ungodly people. Uh, I know I can mention this, Margaret won't mind my mentioning this, but when Margaret was studying uh, at teacher training college in a town in the north, for three years, the church she went to had a family and a family in another church too, who took it on themselves to round up students every Lord's Day and bring them home and give them meals and fellowship. And in the three years that Margaret was in college up there, only one Lord's Day was she without a Christian home to be in. Wasn't that remarkable? And that is so commendable. And... So, given to hospitality. Sometimes believers are having a very hard time of it in their situation. Sometimes in their own home. But a sympathetic place in a believer's home and family. What a wonderful thing. And there is a blessing in giving hospitality. Scripture says, Some have entertained angels. Unawares, like Abraham with the three men in Genesis chapter 18. But certainly it is that the Lord is entertained, because doesn't he say in Matthew 25, uh, I was hungry, and ye fed me, and ye took me in? And so those who give hospitality, Jesus says, Inasmuch as ye have done it unto one of the least of these, my brethren, ye have done it unto me. What a tremendous thought that is. Let us seek to do that as much as we can. I know that it's not always possible and some people can do it to a greater extent than others. But let us try to be given to this gracious ministry. It says in 1 Peter 4 verse 9, Use hospitality one to another without grudging because you see the carnal heart is so selfish and doesn't want naturally to put ourselves out and it would be wrong to do it because you feel you've got to do it not with grudging but gladly lovingly as unto the Lord and for his dear people given to hospitality and then verse 2 again apt. To teach, skillful in using God's word for the teaching elder or minister, of course it's preaching, the gift of preaching. For ruling elders, it would be the ability to use scripture in, say, giving counsel and comfort from God's word. And deacons the same when visiting others or in their own home ability to know what scriptures would apply to cases of need be able to quote those scriptures and apply them helpfully and encouragingly apt apt in this way often it is that the lord in our own bible reading brings us to those places and those promises which Really bless us. And then we sort of note them and think this would be a help to so and so, perhaps. I'll keep this up and uh, I, w- I would like to use this for the sake of someone else apt to teach. And it reminds us that it's a major part of the work to bring the word to bear in spiritual leadership. The chief means. Of grace. It can be one needy soul to know how to apply a a precious verse or passage that would really lift them up and really change their whole outlook on things. The Lord speaking through this verse, lovingly, wisely applied. What a blessing! How refreshing how resolving of a, a difficulty maybe, using the word in that way. And also, it can be in terms of the position of the church, the situation in a church at any time, apt to teach. In other words, a man that the church can look up to as one with the pastor Supporting the stand a minister takes, supporting his thrust in the preaching of the word, one with him in his faithful leadership from God's word, apt in these things and not hesitant or wobbling or being in two minds about these things, but office bearers who can be trusted and men who, in whom the minister can have confidence in, because he, they, are one with the minister in the word of God, in the principles, convictions, distinctives of the given church, apt to teach, supporting the preaching ministry. And so a man, men who know the word of God, familiar with it, can use it, can use it as a means of real grace to others. And then, next, verse 3, patient, but patient. Literally, mild, gentle. As we seek to lead the church by God's word, Sometimes uh, there will be met an unwillingness to follow scripture, apt to teach, but not apt to learn, not apt to submit. Maybe quite the reverse, and there can be hostility and criticism. And what then? Patience. And that's a quality that is so vital. It means that you bear with people and are not reacting to their opposition, but being kind and bearing with them. And there can be times when there is such a reaction no gratitude for all that's been taught all that's been given and disagreement even rebellion there are two verses in the new testament which guide the pastor and elders particularly when that is the case and i turn you to philippians 3 in verse 15 which stands us in good stead because it's what the Apostle himself would do in such a situation. Philippians 3 and verse 15, let us therefore, as many as be perfect or mature, be thus minded, follow the teaching that's been apt to be given, and if in anything ye be otherwise minded, disagreeing, opposing, bringing something else instead, refusing to follow what is clearly God's word. God shall reveal even this unto you. And there, you see, is the comfort because at the end of the day, no matter how apt to teach, If God's people are not taught of God, they won't understand or receive any more than any of us will. It's down to the teaching of the Holy Spirit, the enlightening of the mind, and the bringing the will into submission to God's word. God shall reveal even this unto you. You may know people who have disagreed with you more, more generally, more widely. What's your hope? God will show them. The Lord can give them a soft heart, a teachable spirit, a submissive will. It is a gracious thing. It's not down to our skill in persuading and convincing. Although we try, as grace will enable, to do that... With the aptness to teach, our hope is God shall reveal even this unto you. Every pastor would say, You have no idea how many detractors I have around the place whom I've never been able to convince, but God can convince them. It's after all simply... God's word being established and made clear and submitted to. God shall reveal. So that's the hope. Pray that that will be the case. And the other verse is 2 Timothy 2, verses 24 and 25, where we've got this. In verse 23, avoiding strifes. And then verse 24, 2 Timothy 2. The servant of the Lord must not strive, but be gentle unto all men. That's that patient, see, being gentle, mild. Gentle unto all men, apt to teach, patient, in meekness instructing those that oppose themselves. If God peradventure will give them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth. Now here is a situation you see very like as I've described. And there is an opposition to the clear teaching of God's word. And maybe some strong words in opposition. The servant of the Lord must not strive. Now that's been taken by some. As the minister must never be strong in applying God's word. But he must let people think what they think or back off and not confront. But that's a total misuse. You don't strive, but you are apt to teach patiently, instructing those that oppose themselves. It's the way you do it. It's not, not do it at all. It's the way you do it. And the way you do it is gently, patiently, graciously, applying God's word and yet firmly instructing those that oppose themselves. And that's the means God uses, isn't it? To reveal these things unto them, the instruction of God's word. If, peradventure, God will give them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth. A change of mind, altered completely, because God has given that understanding and that submission. And how many of us, perhaps, have been quite vociferous, quite vocal, in uh, arguing against the doctrines of grace or arguing against certain aspects of things in the church and we wouldn't submit and we're not going to have that. We believe otherwise. And now we're different. Why? Because there has been patient instruction given us and God has given us the change of mind, the repentance. So, patient it's the work of the Lord to do that and an additional application is this that blessing does not come overnight and how do we react when nothing seems to happen by way of fruit people saved believers blessed church growing What do we do? Patient. The long haul. You can't do God's work for him in that sense. You can't force things. God's work is done in God's way. Patiently waiting for his blessing upon it. And the true test, I think, of any minister is... When he settles in his church, is he prepared to be there for the long haul? Or if after three years he doesn't see anything happening, move on. Go to a bigger place or a more potentially fruitful place, saying, oh, I can't stand this. This is doing my head in. I've got to get out of this place and go somewhere else where my talents will be more fruitful. That kind of reasoning is so far from A man who is called of God to the Christian ministry. Or an elder who is called to the office of oversight in a local church. Or a deacon who is called to care and administrate in the local church. Patient. Because blessing is not in our hands. We are the means. And we diligently use means. And we pray. And we look to God. And we hope in God but it's only when his time comes for the blessing that the blessing can be patient. And we have a great respect, don't we, for ministers we know who have stayed in churches 10, 20, 30, 40 and more years, not seeing it as a career move to go to a bigger or better place, but staying with God's people Staying where the Lord has put them and saying, even if I come to the end of my ministry and I've got a handful of souls around me, so be it. Because it's the master's well done, not my pragmatism and not my carnal deserting my post or proving treacherous to my divine calling. It's the master's well done. That counts. Patient. Revelation 2 verse 19. I know thy works. And charity. And service. And faith. And thy patience. And thy works. And the last. To be more than the first. Commending the church there. For its patience. God has made everything beautiful in his time. Our times are in his hand. And while we never want to get to a position whereby we are complacent and uh, indifferent about whether there is blessing or not, if that is the case, well then, self-examination, more prayer. And as the Lord makes clear, perhaps, Additional things to do. But never the case that we take things into our own hands and try to get the blessing going as if it is down to us. Far less changing the Bible version to a modern version or changing the worship to something modern and accommodating to those from outside so that the rock music they're used to hearing has something of it here in the church as well so that they feel comfortable. That kind of treachery, dear friends, and unfaithfulness. God keep us from a single thought along those lines. Patience. God has entrusted us with the truth and the right ways of the Lord. Keep going. Day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, until God blesses. But God will honour those who honour him. And we don't move an inch from where God has established us to be and to stand. Church commitment, you see. Patience. And the Lord will bless if we keep going patiently. And then, verse 7. Men of reputation where it says that they have a good report of them which are without lest he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil and it's the thought of those outside the church inside of course very important but what about people living in this area And uh, people who never come to church but live in neighbourhoods round about. And our neighbours and our work colleagues and our friends, what do they see? A good report of them which are without. No essential difference between how we are on the Lord's Day And how we are on Monday. So that you get this kind of thing. Well, I don't agree with what he believes. I wouldn't want it myself, but I've got to admit, he's one of the nicest people I know. They use the word nice, don't they? Oh, nice man. But uh, you know what they mean. But it would be a terrible thing if in cynicism they would say, yeah, well, of course he's uh, got an office in the church You ought to see him in his office at work and that's a different thing. And if that's Christianity, I don't want it. Oh, how the devil has used that to bring uh, disrepute upon the gospel and turn people from the gospel of Christ. A good report of them which are without. Because you see, people's consciences are such and common grace is such that honesty is seen as a commendable thing and integrity and love and care for others is seen as something very commendable and faithfulness to what you believe and consistency of life even the most ungodly people are impressed with these things. And it boils down to timekeeping at work, doesn't it? And coming punctually to work and leaving at the right time and the way you do your work and how the employer sees a Christian employee in the quality and uh, dedication of his work, the diligence, the professionalism. These things are what people of the world admire and pay lip service too. And so a good report of them which are without. No office bearer in the church will ever be said to be perfect. But sincere. And consistent. As far as he is able. And as far as we know. Men of reputation. Because otherwise you see. In verse 6. If he's a novice, go to his head, lifted up with pride, he fall into the condemnation of the devil. The devil has snared him and triumphed over him, who is ever the accuser of the brethren, and can stir up the ungodly then to criticize and condemn professing Christians who fall and fail in this regard. But a good report will silence critics and silence the devil and commend the gospel our church preaches and will bring honour to our Redeemer. It's important for outreach, isn't it? Just imagine here's an open air uh, in the Guildhall Square and there is an office bearer standing near the preacher identifying himself with this gospel that's being preached And then one of his work colleagues passes and sees him there. (coughs) And would he be surprised? And would he put two and two together and say, this doesn't make four? And there would be that guilty embarrassment. That would be a terrible thing. But a good report is another thing altogether a life that commends that gospel that he's publicly identifying with in the open air situation. Well, what about giving out a tract and you meet a neighbour and before you know who it is you've handed the tract and the neighbour's got it in his hand and you're face to face. What kind of neighbour are you? And what does your neighbour think of you? What kind of person are you like to live next door to? How have you been? And there could be the covered with confusion and embarrassment if there's been not a good relationship that's been your fault, I mean, our fault, not theirs. It's not always easy to get on with uh, neighbours, but if we've done the best, we can. I guess the, the acid test is, If you tell your neighbours you're moving house and going elsewhere, they'll say, oh, no, please don't leave us. You've been lovely neighbours. That's the test. And that is the, the good report of them that are without. Exemplary. I remember in one of our previous churches we had a deacon... And he worked for a number of years at a very large factory in the town, huge factory that employed uh, thousands of men and women. And he became a foreman in that factory. And they, they knew he was a deacon in the church. But it was known that there was never, ever... Any criticism of this dear man. All the men that he was foreman over spoke well of him. Not a word against him. He was admired and he was loved. Tremendous witness and testimony. And while they won't listen to the gospel, they looked at his life. And that spoke to them. And that's the kind of thing, isn't it? When you're in a position of authority, how you treat people under you and how they view you in, for the gospel's sake. And then, finally, as we close, 1 Peter 5, verse 3, being examples to the flock, examples to everybody else. You know, when I was converted first and I was so ignorant and feeling my way spiritually I often used to think what is the Lord Jesus like? What, what is he like? And what I used to do is I used to look up to uh, adults in my home church and among them deacons we only had deacons, no elders and I used to look at some of the lives of these men and I, I was impressed by them. I thought to myself and it's, I know it's not as necessarily a right thing to do but in my simplicity it's all I knew at the time and I said the Lord Jesus is like that. That's, he is a wonderful saviour because in their lives they reflected something of him in the way they looked after us as young people and Gave themselves to our benefit spiritually and were so kind. And their clean, clean lives that I was not used to. Morally clean and upright and good and gracious. The Lord Jesus is like that. And so it's the gospel embodied. Examples to the flock. So may the Lord bless our church with the gift of more such men and lead us all forward that we might grow in holiness and serve our generation by the will of God. And may the risen Saviour give us more of these gifts and more of his blessing for his glory. Amen.